Awesome. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Jillian. Appreciate you guys being there and Chandler behind the scenes, making all the tech happen there at the church. Really grateful for you guys. Um, good to see you all here this morning. As Adam said, um, we are diligently working and, and looking forward to being back together, or at least the hybrid of being back together, being online and being together. And uh, if you missed the announcement this week, we put that on the website. Um, we've been working hard. We, we were hoping to be able to make this happen in June, but felt like out in a, out of a, an abundance of caution, but also uh, just the logistics that go into, uh, do you know how hard it is to find hand sanitizer right now? It's really hard. Uh, great connection from within our church. Shelly Speaker connected us with a distillery who has shifted their, some of their business uh, and has, has been um, actually creating some uh, hand sanitizer. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, so we're working on all that and we'll be back beginning of June. So, but in the meantime, we're glad that you guys are here and we'll continue doing this uh, for everybody uh, just as we continue to go forward to make the possibility for all of us to be able to connect together. So uh, as, uh, as Adam said, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the last week of this series that we've been in uh, for um, the last nine weeks now. So this is the ninth week of our series called the, the Common Practice, called Common Practices. And we've been following along in this series with a book called The Common Rule by a guy named Justin Whitmill Early. Uh, and he wrote this book about four daily practices and four weekly practices that are designed to grow our faith. Uh, now today we're, we're wrapping up the series, so we're looking at the last weekly habit. And if you're new or if you're just joining us, uh, you can always go back online and catch up or pick up the book and catch up. Uh, but if you're here and you've been tracking through this for a while and uh, you're feeling a little overwhelmed as we start to come to the end of the series, uh, maybe feeling a little tuned out to this topic, um, because it's a, nine weeks is a long time to talk about the same thing. Totally understandable. I get where you are. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground uh, in the work of creating a rule of life, of, uh, of arranging your, your, your life and your habits and practices to reflect the priority of your faith. It's not easy. And in fact, nine weeks is not nearly enough to really be able to, to figure this out. It's a lifelong, it's actually a lifelong process that changes and shifts as the season and your life change pursuing a habit, a set of habits or a rule of life is actually something that you'll continue to hopefully come back to over time. So we, we hope that, that even if you've struggled to keep up or you've struggled with motivation to continue uh, practicing some of these habits, that you'll circle back, that you'll come back maybe to these messages or pick up the book again in the future or, or just focus on one, on one or two of these at a time. Whatever it takes, keep at it. And remember, we say this every week. We've been saying this every week. Um, this is from the book that uh, our habits can't change God's love for us, but God's love can and should change our habits, which is really good news. That means that there's no pressure. There is only gain. There's only benefit in pursuing a set of habits that can help us to grow on our faith. And if that isn't enough good news, I have more. So uh, we all may be feeling a little bit tired and worn out from trying to do these practices, maybe a little tired and over this service uh, or this series. Uh, maybe you're just feeling a little bit tired and worn out from life in general. Who could blame you? There's a lot going on. I certainly feel a little bit of that. Um, and if that's a little bit, if that resonates with you, if you just feel tired, um, then the good news is that today we're wrapping up the series with a practice that's all about rest and replenishment. Our final habit this week is the weekly habit of Sabbath. Now, you may be familiar, most of us here are probably familiar with the concept of Sabbath, what it is. Um, a weekly day of rest, uh, but it's, it's actually a core part of 
the practice of the Jewish faith, which was then adopted and brought into the Christian faith and modified somewhat. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in a minute as we look at some scriptures that talk about the foundation and the basis of, of, where, scripture, of uh, where Sabbath came from. But even if you're here today and you're not a church person, even if you're a person that you don't really know what the word Sabbath is or it seems weird or connected to a religious practice and you don't know what that's about, if nothing else, you're familiar with the difference between weekdays and weekends, days for work and days for rest. All of us alive today have always grown up. We've lived in the weekly rhythm of American life that has revolved around this pattern. Five days of work and two days of rest or recreation. Saturday, which is the traditional day of the Jewish Sabbath, and then Sunday, which is the day that Christians shifted their Sabbath to uh, in recognition that Jesus' resurrection happened on a Sunday. But when we begin to look closer at the history of America, the American work week and where that came from, what we begin to see is we get a picture of the complicated nature and relationship that we as Americans have with work and productivity and the place of rest and leisure. If we go all the way back to the beginning of our country in pre-industrial America, most people who worked, worked on farms. The work was hard and physical, and most people worked six to seven days a week, from sunup to sundown. And the work varied from season to season. And of course, it, it's worth noting in our current cultural moment that during that period, much of the, that work that was done was actually done by slaves that were brought over from Africa. We, we have to see, as we look back and think about the history of our relationship between rest and productivity and, and our desire to see more and more growth of wealth, we have to see that as tied up into one of America's greatest national sins. And so as we continue to move forward, what we see is in the 1800s, uh, work began to shift and change as the Industrial Revolution pulled people out of farms and into cities to work in factories where with the assistance of gas lighting initially and then later electric lighting, the workday was no longer constrained just by the rising and the setting of the sun. Workers would regularly put in 12 plus hour days, working 60 to 70 hours a week. But by the mid 1800s, that trend reversed itself. Workers began, workers began to organize and, and they began to unionize and hours steadily declined all the way through the early 1900s. And in the 20s, the government actually shortened the work week to five days. And then in 1940, the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed, which established the 40-hour work week, that people under a certain classification of work could only work 40 hours a week without being paid overtime. It was, it was a protection for workers. And so then an interesting thing, so that was 1940. So then something interesting begins to happen. In the 1950s, that trend, the trend of work hours decreasing, people going from 70, 80 hours a week, working six to seven days a week to five days a week, and then this, this law being passed for a 40-hour week, suddenly in the 1950s, the trend begins to reverse itself. Positions that were exempt from the FLSA uh, standards, full-time, professional, and managerial positions, they begin to increase the number of hours that they're working every week. As the cost of required benefits increase, part-time and contract work means that people are starting to work multiple jobs more and more. That becomes more common until what we now call the gig economy has slowly become the norm where people are piecing together multiple pieces of work. And it's hard for a statistician 
statisticians to really even be able to understand or know how many hours per week are we actually working as Americans. And it's really, it's too early for us to know the full effects of the pandemic, but it seems unlikely that a recession and the difficulty, the, the, the tumult in the job market is going to relieve this, this pressure that we feel to get and to keep good work. Before the pandemic, studies showed that over 85% of American men and 66% of American women work more than 40 hours a week, which is significantly more than most standard, uh, most other uh, industrialized nations around the world. When we, we've often compared ourselves to Europe um, or to other places that, that have more limitations on the number of hours and more requirements for vacation. We're also famous for not taking vacation or not resting very well. Um, to which you may look at that and say, yeah, but look how much stronger our economy is than theirs is. Which is, you know, there's some truth to that. There is definitely benefits to the American work ethic and our high value for productivity. We are extremely productive as a culture. We value efficiency. We value productivity. We value hard work. But at what cost? That's the question. That we're asking today. What's the cost of all of that productivity, all of those time-saving measures to do more and more and more in every aspect of our life? Stress, anxiety, depression are all at all-time highs, and that actually was before the pandemic even started. I'm sure that that has only contributed to and increased our stress, our anxiety, and our sense of tension that we bring into our work. In the book that we've been reading, The Common Rule, the author describes a season in his own life when he was driven by his work to a state of, of total unhealthiness. He was living and working cross-culturally as a missionary, actually, and he was trying to learn the language and putting a lot of time and effort into it. He was pushing himself to work almost constantly, trying harder and harder to get by on less and less sleeps. Less sleep. And then suddenly the the, these lesions started appearing on his body and on his face. And he started having this strange swelling. And he went to the doctor, and the doctor, as he listened to him, and, and Justin describes telling him about this spreadsheet that he had to try and figure out how to get less and less sleep so, so he could get more and more done. He said the doctor looked at him kindly and just told him in Chinese, you need rest. You need to rest. And it was this comment from a doctor, from a Chinese doctor, telling him that he needed rest, that returned him, a Christian missionary at the time, to, to reconsider the biblical concept of Sabbath, the weekly practice of taking a day to rest and work. Now, to understand the biblical concept of practicing Sabbath, where that comes from, I want to go all the way back to the establishment of the, 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 the ancient nation of Israel. So the tribe of Israel, that is the descendants of Abraham, the people that begin to grow and become a tribe, they had been living in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They, they went, to, uh, Abraham's descendants, they, they moved to, to Egypt because of a famine. And they were stuck there and, and eventually were enslaved by one of the kings. And, and they were in slavery there for, for almost 400 years when God raises up a man, Moses, um, to lead them to freedom. Now, we're all probably familiar with that story, whether you actually read it in the Bible or whether you just watched one of the many Hollywood accounts of the Moses story, the Exodus story. 
And, and what that story is all about is that God brings his people, the, the people of Israel, out of slavery. And he's preparing to establish them then as a new nation. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness um, to go to this land that God had promised them. God's establishing them in a land, and then he's going to give them a law, a set of guidelines that, that are going to govern their life. They are to be set apart and to be different from all the other peoples that lived in that area, all the other tribes. They are to have a code of conduct, of life. They're going to have a rule system that defines how they are to live in relationship with him and how they are to live in relationship with one another. The foundation of this law it's what we know as the Ten Commandments. God gives these to Moses before they enter the Promised Land. Four of these laws, four of these prescriptions from God, are how they are to love God. They're about loving God. And six of them are about how they are to love one another, how they are to live in relationship with one another. And the fourth commandment, which is the last of the four prescribing how the Israelites are supposed to love God, is the establishment of this thing called the Sabbath. So look at what it says um, as God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, Exodus, Exodus 20, it says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant or your animals or any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So let's break this down. Starting with the first sentence, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What's being referred to there? Well, in Hebrew, the word for Sabbath or Shabbat literally means to cease or to desist, to stop. And this admonition in the Ten Commandments is a call for the Israelites to remember the Genesis account of God's creation of all things. So the story that had been handed down from generation to generation and was eventually put down, written down in the book of Genesis is the description of God's creative activity in, in six days or six movements of time as he's creating. And in contrast to other account, ancient accounts, uh, which we have lots of other stories that came from ancient peoples about, about how the world and how the universe, how the cosmos came to be, to be created. And most of them are rooted in some sort of violence or conquest and this animosity that existed between higher beings, between gods and mankind. But in the Genesis account, the Israelites, the Hebrew account of, of this God who created all things, God isn't a, a warmonger who, who, who destroys things and out of that comes existence. There's not a war between battling gods. Genesis tells a story of a generative and creative God speaking all things into existence and really enjoying the work as he goes. These movements, these days, he's creating things. He's bringing to, to, to bear all of his creative power, creating light and darkness, all of the, the varied variety of animal life and plants that exist on our planet. He's creating the varied array of, of stars in the heavens, the constellations, all the, all the stars and, and the planets and the galaxies and solar systems that we look in, we see God speaking these things into existence. And in each day or movement, God looks at his work and he says, it's good. This is good. He's really enjoying this work. And after six days or six seasons of this work, Genesis conveys that God ceases. He stops. 
He stops. He sabbaths from the work of creation. He rests. Now, you could ask, is he resting because he's tired? Six days of creating the universe, was he tired? Seems unlikely that for a limitless God who simply speaks the cosmos into existence, that that would be the case. It seems like what God is doing is, first of all, enjoying looking out over his creation, seeing what he has made. But he's also, because on the sixth day or in the sixth movement, he created mankind. And he gave them the job of being, of having dominion over or superintending or stewarding this creation that he's made. And it seems that this, that the seventh day, the Sabbath day, God is stopping and making space. He's making room for human beings to reflect his image, which they were created to bear his image and his likeness. And God's making room for us, for human beings, to reflect his image through work, through taking the raw materials, if you will, of the world that he placed us in and doing what God did, making something, creating something new out of what is existence. We can't create things from nothing. That's God's job. But God placed us in this world that he created, and he created us in his image to work and to make things. That's a part of what it means to be human. But of course, the Genesis story also conveys that God's perfect creation was marred by our choices, our desires to put ourselves first, to distrust God and to disbelieve and disobey what he's told us, allowing what the Bible calls sin or, or that choice when we do something that we know is not good for us, not good for others, that willing choice to allow sin to enter the world cursed or corrupted the goodness of what God has made. And that's what the world that we see around us today. The world's not all good or all bad. It's all mixed up together. The world is filled with both good and bad, blessings and curses, beauty and great corruption. And even the good things that we enjoy in life are tinged. They're tinged with brokenness. They're tinged with sin, which includes the work that we do. Our work, this, this part of our human nature, which most reflects the creative God in whose image we were made, it now has the capacity to both give life and to take life from us. Work can bestow dignity and honor and satisfaction and provision, but without restraint, it also has the capacity to exploit, to oppress, and to dehumanize us, which is why. This is why God commands the Israelites when he's giving them the law. One of the first 10 things he tells them is that they're to remember the, the Sabbath day, the day that he himself ceased from working. He tells them this wasn't just him taking a break, that he was establishing a pattern for them to follow. He tells them that they too are to set apart one day for rest and enjoyment of the good creation he's given them. They're to remember him by making one day holy or set apart. That's all that holy means. Set apart for rest, for recreation, for replenishment, and for worshiping God. And you know, God wasn't really done. The fourth commandment to honor the Sabbath day was just the beginning. As we go through the book of Leviticus and we see the establishment of the fullness of the law, what you begin to see is that this concept of Sabbath, God wove it into the life of the Israelites. God would give them so many ways that they were to integrate Sabbath into their everyday lives. Well, for starters, he, he gave them morning and evening. And for ancient peoples, this governed their days. When the sun came up, you worked. When the sun went down, 
you stopped. There was a rhythm in every day of working and rest, working and rest. And then weekly, he tells them, remember the Sabbath day. Remember the day that I stopped and you do likewise. Take 24 hours and cease from your working. You, all of the people who live in your household, even the foreigners who are living in your land and may not believe in me, work is to stop. Businesses are to be closed. Everything is to shut down. But then yearly, on top of that, there were feasts and memorials that were established to the Lord. And people would go to the temple and they would make sacrifices and they would feast and they would spend time with loved ones. There were these times, these rhythms, every year of feasts and festivals where they were to take time to stop working and to enjoy the goodness of all that God had given them. And then on top of that, they had what was known as a sabbatical year. So the concept of a sabbatical, you may have heard of this in, in work life where you, you work for a season of time and then you take an extended time off. This comes from the Bible, the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, the fields were to rest. This was an agrarian economy. They were actually to stop working, to not plant their fields, which is actually kind of a remarkable ask. It's remarkable to say, you know, even the earth needs to rest. You need to care for it by not making it work and provide for you every year. So six years, you're going to harvest and you're going to work. And in the seventh year, you're going to let the fields rest. You're going to let the land rest, which required incredible planning for them to actually pull off. And God still wasn't done. There was what was known as the year of Jubilee after seven sabbatical years. Every 50 years, debts were forgiven. Indentured servants were set free. There was this idea that freedom was, was bound up with this concept of Sabbath. And every 50 years, everybody got a reset. Talk about like, uh, you know, eliminating the, 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 the inequities that existed in an economic system. Suddenly, everybody was on a, every 50 years was on a level playing field. See, God wanted to weave the rhythm of work and rest into the life of his people. And he did that in a variety of different ways. Now, unfortunately, the story of Israel is tragic. It's that rules and laws, even good laws, given for the benefit of people, even good laws given directly from God, can't change the brokenness and the sin of the human heart. Which we would do good to remember that, that salvation for us isn't going to come from changing laws and rules. doesn't mean that laws and rules are bad. It just means that people are broken. There's always going to be this tension that exists between how do we live together and how do we have a way of understanding the right way to live together. But the broke, laws can't change the brokenness and sinfulness of the human heart, which is, of course, why Jesus came. He came because we can't save ourselves. God had to come to reconcile us through Jesus. And by the, by the time Jesus arrives, proclaiming this good news of God's kingdom and inviting people to believe and to trust in, the, in him and his way, his kingdom way, Israel had reduced the law to their own kind of virtue signaling. You know, when you followed the law, it was basically projecting to everybody that you were on board, that you were, you were in. You were in the in group. You weren't in the out group. You were doing your part. You were a good, holy, and righteous person. Like this, this external signaling was very important. And Jesus, over and over and over again, clashed with Jewish religious leaders because following the law had become detached from the pursuit of, of a good life and the freedom that God had intended it to be. 
multiple occasions throughout the stories of Jesus's life, the biographers, the men who wrote the stories of Jesus's life, tell us that Jesus clashed uh, in particular around this issue of Sabbath. In the book of Mark, one of the four accounts of Jesus's life, he tells us of, of an occasion where Jesus and his followers were walking through a grain field on the Sabbath day, on a Saturday. And his followers trail their hands along and they're grabbing the stalks of wheat and pulling some of the grains off and eating them, just very casually. And some of the most conservative religious people of his day see this and they rebuke him, they challenge him, they say, how is it that you and your followers are breaking the Sabbath by harvesting wheat? They're, they're just grabbing some with their hand and eating it. And Jesus's response reflects the heart of the practice of Sabbath. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, which is a messianic title that Jesus appropriates for himself, the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath is not a religious practice to earn favor with God. We don't get extra points by taking a day off. We don't take get an ex, any extra points for showing up on on a Sunday and worshiping God together. No, Sabbath is a gift, not a requirement. But, but it's only a gift, like any gift, it's only a gift if we're willing to actually receive it and practice it. We can only receive the gift of Sabbath if we have the courage to resist the pull of our culture for nonstop, 24 seven, 365 productivity. If we give in to our culture's value for endless productivity without any thought about the toil that it takes, our bodies, our minds, our souls, then we will never experience the freedom that God invites us to through Sabbath. And you know, there's been a lot of talk. I mean, during my working life, during the, the, the period of time, the last 25 years that I've been in the, the work world, um, it seems like we've become aware there, there's been seasons and times where people are, are sort of generally aware that we don't have a great healthy relationship with our work. The, those last 25 years has been during that time we've seen the average amount of work, you know, going up and up and up. And, and I've had very few jobs where the expectation was, was 40 hours a week where you clocked in and clocked out. Um, and, and we've had a general sense that the pace of our work might not actually be sustainable. That, that maybe we might have something to learn from other cultures, that maybe there is life outside of work and it would be important for us to prioritize, prioritize it. And throughout my career, the phrase that has followed that is, we need work-life balance. We need to balance our life. I've always hated that phrase. Let me tell you why. First, because I don't know about your experience, but it often feels like a buzzword, like a buzz phrase, like, like companies, and let me be honest, even churches that I've worked for have talked about this concept of work-life balance, but when push comes to shove, there's always a subtle or, or even not so subtle, maybe a direct message that is, you better deliver. We, we want you to have work-life balance, we want your life to be balanced, but at the end of the day, you better not let your performance slip. Performance always comes at the cost of your personal life. That, that's always been my experience, either subtly or directly. And second, there's something very, the second reason I don't like that phrase, work-life balance, is that there's something unsatisfying about the concept of balance. Maybe it's because it's so impossible to, to attain. Different situations 
or seasons of life call us to focus in an area of life more than others. Life never hits at the same time and different seasons of life, different stages of our life require different ways of living. And to try and achieve balance would require ignoring this reality to try and maintain some sort of equilibrium. It would basically be like doing everything badly. Instead, when I think about Sabbath, the concept of Sabbath, I think of it as God's invitation to find rhythm in our life. This rhythm that exists between working and, and doing work, which is what we were created to be, to be and to do as human beings, to reflect God's creative image by doing good work, and the rhythm of finding rest and the movement that happens between those two daily, weekly, monthly, seasonally throughout years and in different years, in different seasons of our life as time goes on, as we go through different phases of our life. When we embrace God's invitation to Sabbath, it's an invitation to more than just choosing to rest. Sabbath is also an invitation to embrace our limitations. Part of this is just acknowledging we can't physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually work nonstop without rest. We can try, and you know what? What will happen to us is what Justin describes in the book. Our bodies will break down. Our minds will break down. Eventually, your body will claim the rest that it was created for. But Sabbath is a way of embracing that from the beginning, to recognize that you are a limited, a limited human being. You're, you're a limited creature with limited resources. You need rest. You need to stop. You can't work all the time. And in that and in so much more, Sabbath is an invitation to trust God, to, to believe that if we stop working, that God will fill in the gaps, that, that God will renew us and replenish us and provide for us. It's a way of remembering everything that we are, everything that we have ultimately comes from God. This is a way of worshiping God that says we acknowledge that all we are and all we have comes from you. And in that, there's a there's an invitation in Sabbath to a deeper intimacy with God. As we create space in our week to recognize our life does not revolve around us, we are not in control. We don't have ultimate say about our destiny, about, about what we're going to be able to do. We, we can't control. And if anything, our current life situation, this global pandemic and all the other things that we're struggling with should be a reminder that ultimately God is in control and we need to go back to him to go deeper into our relationship with him and to remember that it's him who's in control. But, but again, God's not just concerned with our relationship with him, he's concerned about our relationship with others. And Sabbath creates an invitation to connect with other people, to love God, to create space to love God and to love others. And lastly, it's an invitation to rest and to be replenished and to work from a place of rest not to rest from work. Again, your body will claim rest if you don't take it. You will collapse. You will get sick. You'll end up in the hospital. Your body will eventually rest. But isn't it a better thought? Isn't it, doesn't it feel like a more life-giving proposition to think about working, doing work from a place of rest, engaging your work with excitement and focus because you've rested well? So that's the invitation of our final habit. As we close up this series today, I invite you to, to add the habit of engaging with a 24-hour period of time of Sabbath. 
one 24-hour period per week to cease from all your work and to engage in activities of rest, replenishment, and worship. Now, this may sound great, but it, it's going to actually take some planning and coordination to make it happen. It, it may take setting some expectations and rearranging schedules with friends and with family members as you begin to prioritize this 24-hour period. It, it may take setting some boundaries with your coworkers, like not re responding to texts or emails on your Sabbath days. It might, it might even require you to choose to fast completely from your phone or your computer on whatever day your Sabbath ends up being. And if you find yourself thinking, well, that just doesn't work for my job. I mean, I have to be available or things won't get done or my boss might need me. Can I just challenge you? You're not that important. Now, very, very few of us have a job that requires us to be available seven days a week, 24 hours a day. If you have one of those, you might want to rethink what the, the toll of that is taking on your life. I just want to challenge you that one of the greatest gifts of Sabbath is realizing that you're not that important. That, as a friend of mine says, when you fall off the back of the cruise ship, the cruise ship just keeps on going. Life is going to continue without you. Everyone will figure out how to get around these new limitations that you're putting in place. People will change, I promise you. The world won't fall apart if you take 24 hours to not work. And creating that space, it's, it's a step of faith to believe that God's going to meet you to fill in the gaps, that you'll get done in the other six days what you need to get done and what doesn't get done will, will somehow be okay. I actually had to be reminded of that this week while I'm prepping for this sermon. My Sabbath, I practice sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And guess what? At 6 p.m., sundown on Friday, I wasn't done with this message. And everything in me wanted to just keep working on it. I hadn't finished my slides. I hadn't gotten any of that done. And I thought, how hypocritical. I have got to practice what, literally what I'm preaching this week. So I stopped working on it, put it away, came back last night, 6 p.m., refreshed, renewed with the ideas that I needed to finish writing this and to engage, finish my slides, and get it done. So the point is, it's a step of faith to believe that God will show up and give you the energy, the focus, and fill in the gaps for the things that you can't do yourself. Because you know what? You're never going to be done. You could continually work all the time. There's always more to do. But when you choose to stop, when you choose to rest, you're inviting God into your work with you. And you may be surprised at what the results end up being. So what counts as work and what counts as rest? I get that question a lot when we talk about Sabbath. What is it that I need to do to rest? And, and what counts as work? What's work and what's not work? Is it, is it all about the work that I get paid for? What about work around the house? I think if Jesus were here, he would say, there's no rule. No rules. Sabbath exists for you. Whatever you think of as work, don't do that on your Sabbath day. Whatever you think of as restful and replenishing, do those things. And you may have to do some experimenting. I think most of us are really good at leisure, laying around, watching TV or Netflix, not really doing much. But you may quickly discover that's actually not all that replenishing. Maybe for you, it's more active. Maybe it's going for a hike or working in the garden that actually fills your life. Abraham Heschel said that if you work with your hands, think about Sabbathing, resting with your mind. And if you work with your mind, Think about Sabbathing, resting with your hands. 
Maybe for you, it's, it is more passive. Maybe it's reading or having coffee with a friend. It's going to look different for all of us based on our personality and wiring. It's also going to look really different based on your season of life versus if you're a single person versus being a married person and coordinating what Sabbath looks like. If you have young kids, let me just tell you, you're going to have to fight and contend for Sabbath. It's hard. It's really hard when you have young kids. And that looks really different than what Sabbath looks like when you're an empty nester or when you're retired. But I hope you'll start somewhere. Block off 24 hours and start figuring out how to find your rhythm, the rhythm between work and rest, work and rest. And I hope you'll invite God into that process with you and that you'll be surprised to find all the ways that you experience new life and fulfillment through the practice of Sabbath.